Dr. Fred Hollows was a greatly respected uh, New Zealand-Australian ophthalmologist who restored the eyesight of thousands of people both at home and abroad. And these efforts most notably included advocacy work, working with uh, governments both local and nationally, and efforts particularly on behalf of the poor. And there's a foundation today that bears his name that was formed shortly before his death, with, which continues that work. Well, on one of their campaign websites, uh, the foundation offers this summary of a few of the ways that vision loss affects individual persons in our own day. And they say it does it in this, these ways. It says, these conditions keep children from excelling at school, grandparents from seeing their families grow, and individuals from living their best lives. That's the 21st century experience, or at least a portion of it. But what about the first century experience? For this man who's described here in John chapter 9. What about the experience of the congenitally blind man who's identified here in this gospel reading? You probably won't be surprised to hear that the 21st century summary we just heard could easily be applied to this person's situation. It would have, been, it would have presented an obstacle to living his best life uh, in that century. And at that time in history, his options for supporting himself would be very limited because of his loss of sight or not having sight at all. With begging and relying on the generous care of others being his only real options for survival. But added to these would be a certain kind of abuse that we know all too well in our own generation. The constant whispers. He'd be an outsider, pitied at best, imagined cursed by still others. And we see this kind of thinking and the types of whispers that would ensue for a person like this in society in the question that Jesus' earliest followers ask of their master. You note in verse, in verse 2, they ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, what is the root cause of this man's condition? In our own day, we might ask for the medical explanation. Like, tell us about the biology here. Maybe something with chemistry. Maybe there was an accident that happened uh, if we were to expand outside of the medical condition. But back in that day, it would be posed theologically. And the question is reminiscent of the so-called consoling friends that we encounter in the Old Testament book of Job who are trying to understand, or in their case, make Job understand the reason for his misery. The question follows that what we must have done is something that has caused that. There's a cause and effect relationship here to blindness. The cause being the sin of this man or perhaps the sin of his parents. There's an old uh, account about uh, the dangers of worshiping in a pagan temple if you're pregnant because in some ways the child in utero participates in that worship and that would date back to that same kind of time. Before we dismiss all of this as archaic thinking, something from the past, sometimes we fall into the same kind of thinking, even today, here in our own modern age. Sure, we might phrase it differently, but the sentiment remains. When trouble and misery visits us, God must be out to get us. There must be some sort of trouble there. Or perhaps we might come right out and match the sentiments here altogether. My, uh, I have an uncle that was injured in childhood so severely 
uh, this brain trauma to him. I never had a chance to meet him because he became a ward of the state of California long before I was ever, ever born. And he was completely, his life completely altered uh, by that event, and it, it affected the entire family system. And people in my grandparents' church were asking this same question, you must have sin in your life that has caused this terrible, terrible accident. Well, verse 3 should dispel all of that, as Jesus will quickly dispel all of this silliness. But the question and its peculiar theology isn't the only problem here. Attitude is the turning of a person into an object to be studied. How quick we go to that in our own lives, in our own way of living. We study people, we classify them, and ultimately we condemn them and judge them. The man born blind isn't someone to be welcomed. You think about the word for Christian hospitality, which is a word that's based on two other words, one being love and the other one of strangers. So think about the extent of what hospitality should be in the Greek word itself. It's a love of strangers, but is instead what Max Lucado identifies here as a theological case study or a topic of discussion. That's what they've relegated this person to. Or if you like Martin Buber, they've gone to the I-it relationship, which is not a relationship at all. Certainly the religious elites like the Pharisees won't arrive at this kind of primitive conclusion, right? They're religious. They're elite. Surely they can see the error in all of this. No such luck. As the rebuke of verse 34 charges the now formerly blind person as having been born entirely in sins. Or, as the NIV puts it, steeped in sins. I like tea, so I like steeped. I like that kind of word. N.T. Wright will say, born in sin from top to toe. Doesn't that sound English? Kind of UK-ish? But the real stinger here is that these elites are seeking to do harm in their words. D.A. Carson observes that instead of being a statement about the doctrine of original sin uh, here, they're not making a theological point, their words intend to be, as D.A. Carson writes, a cruel reference to the man's congenital blindness. Eugene Peterson, of course, captures this in his rendering in the message when he writes, you're nothing but dirt. That's the effect of what they're saying to this person. But Jesus sees things differently. Thank God for that. Jesus sees things differently. John 9 doesn't begin with the cultural bias or the bad theology, though. That's not where it begins. That conversation in question begins in verse 2, but there's a verse 1 before that. This here is where Jesus sees a blind man from birth. John's gospel to this point has already shown Jesus seeing and finding disciples. Note how this language accompanies Jesus' call to his earliest disciples. We go all the way back into chapter 1. You'll see the interplay between seeing and finding. And though we have already seen the expectations and bias of that era, Jesus sees this man not with suspicion or sees him for any future possible dismissal, but rather really sees him. And that kind of scene shows up elsewhere in Scripture. One such story that we have is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where a prophet named Samuel is told to go to the house of Jesse of Bethlehem. You might know the story. He's told to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. Of course, that's a dangerous assignment because there's already a king of Israel, <laughs> right? Go and anoint the new king of Israel. So he does it on the down low. 
And Samuel, of course, will name the, the trouble that's with this assignment, this danger here. But God sends him, noting that God will tell him the one who is to be anointed in 1 Samuel 16, verse 3. So Samuel goes, and when he sees Jesse's son Eliab, remember Eliab? Of course you don't. He wasn't the one that was anointed. <laughs> he thinks this is the one. This is the one. He may have been remembering an earlier time when Saul, back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, was anointed and selected as king. There Saul is described as a handsome young man, not a man among the Israelites more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. And so here he is. Surely this must be the case now. This son paraded before him looks the part. But that, of course, is not what happens. Instead, one after another, each of Jesse's sons are shown not to be the one God has chosen. God sees in a way that is different than we do and draws on a less common criteria. What that entails is not left a mystery for us. We don't have to guess what criteria God uses because God will tell Samuel right in that text. He says, Do not look on his appearance or on, the, on his height or his stature, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, we might at first say, wow, that's, that's wonderful. And then we think about our own heart and go, that's not as wonderful as I thought it would be. <laughs> but it might not mean what you think it means. In other words here, God really sees well beyond what our biases allows. Sees far deeper than our primping and styling can reach. And that primping and styling can be on the outside and the inside of our lives. And because of this, and this is no mystery here at all, I think we know this, God isn't a racist. God isn't ageist. God isn't xenophobic. God isn't sexist. And whatever else you want to add here, God isn't that. Not at all. No, God sees you and sees me and really sees us and has compassion and loves us. And so knowing this, we shouldn't be surprised to see Jesus here now who sees this man born blind. Again, not as a category, not as an it, but as a beloved, soon-to-be follower. And so Jesus shows compassion, removing the very category by which this man has been defined and sidelined, that he's been marginalized his entire life, and gives him sight. Or in the ancient way of looking at things, gives him light, puts light on him. And oh, the controversy that will come from that act of kindness. Oh, what controversy. How could something like this healing happen? How could that happen? Neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, as we read in verse 8, can't wrap their minds around what has happened. And not only how, but what? What does this all mean? The text will drop little breadcrumbs for us, though, throughout so that we as readers don't have to keep guessing along or stumbling along. There's little, there's little crumbs like this. Jesus' own identification in verse 4 as the one who's sent by God. This designation is reinforced in verse 7 when the editors note about the pool to which the blind man is to go, which just so happens means sent. So in case you missed it back in verse 4, <clears throat> read verse 7. Also the breadcrumb that the question of the others when they ask in verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? 
Signs, of course, are an important part of John's gospel. See this all throughout his gospel and, and how they work. The word simeon is the word behind that, but how do, these, how do these work? And they function as something more than a show, right? So when we think about modern uh, miracle crusades, when people gather in large mass to see a miracle, to see a healing, uh, these signs do something more than just form some kind of show, but rather they serve as authenticating work that corroborates the message of the one performing said sign. It's pointing somewhere. It's pointing a direction for us to know and to truly know. The post question invites readers to draw a conclusion from what is on display. We won't have to read long to hear that conclusion, right? So you don't have to read long. But you're supposed to pause and consider that question. To consider, how can a man who's a sinner perform this kind of sign? In verse 22, the man's parents are afraid. As it says in the text, the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's the natural conclusion we are to draw here. That Jesus is the Messiah. That is what the author here is saying in flashing lights. What you just saw, you should interpret as being something that points to the Messiah. And of course, this is one of the overall aims of this gospel writer. You turn to John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? So the book is encapsulates in this idea of knowing Jesus is the Christ. The Greek that underscores that chapter 20 verse is also holds the meaning of not only that you might know, but that you might keep on knowing or keep on believing. I want to sing a song there at some point, but I'll hold off for a second there. I know, I know. I'm trying, I'm, I got to shut it off, got to shut it off. Another breadcrumb that shows up is, of course, for us to note that this conclusion that we might draw here is not a fanciful first, isn't fanciful first century thinking. It doesn't come from nowhere. One of the signs of the dawning of the messianic age. So to draw that conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah from what's going on here, that we see one of the, the key points that the messianic age has come upon us is that sight will be given to the blind. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 42, they all point to this coming age and how sight is going to be given to the blind. That these Pharisees didn't see that, that they couldn't make this connection, shows how blind they were to what God was up to in their own midst and in their own generation. Another breadcrumb here, the healed man provides... Uh, this morsel of his own in verse 30 he says you do not know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes verse 33 if this man were not from God he could do nothing the words of this man born blind who can now see enrages these who were born with sight but now cannot see all they can see is sabbath violation after sabbath violation right in front of them is an act of creation the taking of the dirt and crafting for this person new eyes. But they just see violation after violation. Unclean practice. Saliva on another person. How can you do these things? They see the social disruption and disorder in all of it. But yet they can't see the one who is at work here. In their rage, they drove the man out of the synagogue. They want nothing to do with him once again. They still want nothing to do with him. But the Jesus who sees the man born blind, who now can see, this same Jesus finds him. That's what we read in verse 35. 
That sounds like the kind of work we would associate with a good shepherd. A good shepherd who has a lost sheep, who goes and finds that sheep. And oh, by the way, take a look at the next chapter. John chapter 10. What do we read in there? We get a good picture of what Jesus wants for this man in those coming chapters. That this is the good shepherd of John's gospel. That this good shepherd is to be shepherd to one who used to live amongst the people but outside the community. Who was begging and blind. Who was healed by Jesus and tossed out of the assembly. His new reality, the prospect he can now look forward to, is that to which the psalmist, in that great shepherd psalm of Psalm 23, that marked the outset of this service, and which flows from the life of one who can say, the Lord is my shepherd. And what's the prospect of the life of this one who was once marginalized and sidelined? Psalm 23, 6 is a good start. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell not be kicked out not be barred or banned or banished but i shall dwell in the house of the lord my whole life long or that this man who was born blind is given sight physically and even more spiritually that he can now see who jesus is and so he believes which is a synonym for relationship and he can worship jesus as we see in verse 38. He's a transformed person, as Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 5. For once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Jesus came to do this very work, as we read and hear in verse 39. And he wants to do this for you and me, living in this day as well. To the one who is blind, this morning, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't see all this Jesus stuff you're talking about. I have a hard time seeing a living and loving God because my story and my situation is demanding too much of my attention. It's taken me away from any possibility to know that love can exist or that there could be life outside of the places in which I inch my way through life and I struggle with each step. Well, guess what? Jesus wants to give you sight this morning. Jesus wants to open your eyes to something new, to show you a broader horizon, show you greater vistas, things that you could not have possibly imagined previously. It doesn't mean all your problems go away. This blind man got his sight restored, and then he got kicked out of a synagogue. That all happened, all in a day's work. But it does mean that you can see. And that could make all the difference. Or maybe your vision has grown cloudy. Maybe uh, your sight's been restored, but you don't quite, things aren't quite adding up for you. You're looking at it and you're going, ah, I, I don't know, I got so many doubts and questions. And I, and I, and I just really wonder what, what this all means and, and can it possibly be true? And again, maybe life circumstances has put you in a place, has beat you down to a place where you're believing all kinds of things and nothing at all, all at the same time. Well, part of that's being human. Part of that's being a person. But another part is, it's a difficult place to be. It can create a real struggle for us, where we wrestle and we fight and we try to understand, but we don't. 
Well, the beauty is that Jesus who provides sight also comes and finds us. And you note that in verse 37, that Jesus has found this person, this once blind person, and now teaches him. Teaches him what he didn't understand previously. Doesn't berate him for not having all the answers. You went through Sunday school and you know nothing. Jesus doesn't berate you. Jesus loves you and wants to continue to teach you and nurture you and provide for you the care that you'll need all the days of your life and every day throughout all eternity. Amy Julia Becker, and I close with this, begins her essay entitled To Be Made Well, uh, an essay that appeared in comments in November 2022 in writing these words. And I'll just note here that um, I'm going to put this article out. So I'll put it out on Facebook and on Realm so you can see it. Uh, it's an excellent article, definitely worth uh, providing additional thought and pondering over it. But here's how she begins that article. She says, double vaccinated and boosted, I contracted COVID in April of 2022. <laughs> and in spite of the supposed immunity conferred by three shots in the arm, I felt sick, chills and fever and can't stand up sick, fuzzy in the head, burning in the throat and exhausted by a walk to the kitchen sick. So I turned to Advil and NyQuil and Jesus. No, I didn't experience a miraculous recovery, but I began to take Jesus as a healer more seriously in my life. Prayer was no longer a postscript to my medical regimen. I believe that when Jesus walked on earth, he gave sight to the blind and calmed the seizures of an epileptic child. But for most of my adulthood, I behaved as if antibiotics, surgical procedures, and Lexapro had replaced Jesus' healing work in the here and now. I've relegated his healing to another era. The darkness of recent years has made me reconsider. I've come tiptoeing back to Jesus as healer, not simply as a metaphor and not simply as physical fixer, but as a lived reality permeating all of my existence. Friends, today is a good day for each one of us to reconsider. It's a good day for us to tiptoe back, to hear the call of one who sees you, because today is the day of salvation, so that together we might sing that we were once blind, but now I see. May it be for each one of us in our generation this day and every day of our lives.